It's party time. P-A-R-T. Why? Because I've gotta. Ooh, somebody stop me. Joe. Huh, what? Stop. Okay. Hello, and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time talking about all of our favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight, as always, is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby, we have had a time trying to make this episode happen, haven't we? Oh my god, I swear. Jim Carrey put a curse on us. He's mad at us because we made fun of him on Earth Girls Are Easy and in uh, Batman Forever. So he hates us, and it shows. He is coming to take his vengeance upon us. Uh, I was going to say we were cursed by Loki, given the film we're getting ready to discuss. But you know what? Uh, the evidence leans more towards the the Carrey dimension. So, uh, yes, this tonight we're talking about The Mask. This is, in fact, the second time we will have recorded this episode. I'm just going to pull the curtain back now and just say this because we need to get this out there. <laughs> and also, this is technically our third mm, our third night of trying to do it. We were going to do it two nights ago, and then uh, on my way home, I got rear-ended and had to sit on the side of the highway for four hours. So that didn't happen. <laughs> And the first time we recorded it, my audio got corrupted. So this has just been like a thing. Yeah. This has not been easy. But we are here tonight because we are determined to bring you the soundtrack to 1994's The Mask. Get thee behind me, Jim Carrey. (laughs) Get thee behind me, Loki. (laughs) Um. So before we get into the mask, though, we do have some old business from our our last episode. So Libby, uh, take it away. Uh, Last week, we talked about Streets of Fire, which is a movie I think we both started out really disliking and sort of throughout the episode convinced ourselves that we actually kind of loved. So we we posted a couple songs, as we always do, for our poll, and the results actually kind of surprised me. A little bit. Joe, talk to me about the results. Uh, yeah, so I think the thing that we knew was going to happen did happen. Uh, with 63% of the vote, uh, Dan Hartman's I Can Dream About You won the poll easily. See, that actually kind of surprised me because Nowhere Fast, I think, has been stuck in my head for three weeks now. And that's kind of the iconic song out of here because it has sort of more to do with the film. And I Can Dream About You is just... Kind of standard good, but still kind of like meh uh, pop rock. That could have been on any soundtrack in the 80s. I mean, it, it doesn't scream Streets of Fire to it me. It really could have been. But it's weird that you say that because the song that I've had in my head for the last three weeks is Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. Um, because <clears> in, in my head, that's, that song is just a little bit less manic than Nowhere Fast. And it, it's, it feels, it's a better song to like sing along to, I feel like. Yeah, well, so, let's let's go through the rest of the poll. So, how did everything do? Yeah, so nowhere fast came in second place with twenty five percent of the of the vote. Uh, okay, so I was right. You were set. You were you were the second most right. <laughs> and tonight is what it means to be young. Got thirteen percent of the vote. Sorcerer, on the other hand, came away with a big fat goose egg. Uh, yeah, again, which surprised me. I don't know why, but I think because maybe because it sounds so much like Stevie Nicks, I thought at least one person would have, you know, yeah, like our, taken pity the, on it. The one Stevie Nicks stand out there would have like at least given a vote to it, but I guess not. So I uh, want to shout out to our friend Lauren Kellogg at the Snurly, who pointed out that she had actually never seen this movie, but that uh, she still voted for I Can Dream About You <laughs> because everyone loves that song. Of course. Uh, and, yeah. and also a shout out to our friend Rodney on Twitter at SlipKid24, who uh, recommended this movie to us and was very excited that we were going to do it. And I hope he enjoyed the episode. We haven't heard from Rodney since. <laughs> Rodney has probably blocked us. <laughs> probably. Rodney hates us. We're sorry, man. 
Rodney, if you've if you, if you started the episode and you made it to the first 10 minutes or so, please just finish it. It gets better. <laughs> yes, we promise you. All right. Uh, so moving on, it's time to talk about the mask. Where, oh boy. where on earth do we start with the mask? Let's start with a summary. Actually, yeah, why don't you talk about it? Okay. Uh, the Mask uh, was a film from 1994. Uh, it was directed by Chuck Russell, who at the time was kind of kind of a hot property in the, the world of like special effects movies. His two big films before this were um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, and the absolutely unnecessary but totally worth it remake of The Blob. Hmm. And so he got the job to direct The Mask, which is based on a Dark Horse comic series created by Doug Mankey and John Arcudi, uh, which is kind of kind of a, a dark parody of superhero comics because it's about a man who puts on this green mask that has been um, possessed or enchanted by the Norse god Loki to turn a man into the wildest, most uh, hyper-violent version of his own personality and i think that was the idea that they decided was the best fit for a a live action sort of comedy superhero film because what they really wanted to shy away from was like the darkness and the graphic violence in the comic series and it is Um, extremely graphic my husband has them and they're a fucking mess they make sin city look like just a disney movie Oh, man. I need to read these sometime. I haven't actually ever seen the Mask comics before. They're pretty ugly, to be honest. But uh, so it, it's interesting to me that, like, they got uh, this guy who's known for doing, like, you know, these, these gory, gross, hard R horror movies. And his first impulse is, let's make this more lighthearted and more fun and a little bit a little bit more family friendly. But yeah. I, th- I think that was the right um, the right impulse to go with, because I really can't imagine a hard R version of this movie. Don't worry, they'll make it soon. It'll be the gritty <laughs> reboot, and it will star, I don't know, Shia LaBeouf or <laughs> I someone, mean, some 21-year-old dummy whose name I don't know, some Instagram kid. God, I'm old. Honestly, like The Mask is a New Line cinema film, and since Warner Brothers owns New Line now, I'm sure he'll show up in the DC universe sooner or later. Oh, God. <laughs> you know what? We deserve that. Yeah. I could just I could just picture like Jim Carrey out or somewhere like sending Zack Snyder texts like yo you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, a... they were going to do a sequel and Jim Carrey actually de- declined to reprise the role. Yeah, like he he did a sequel to to Ace Ventura Pet Detective and that was apparently an extremely terrible production. It's an extremely terrible movie. Mm-hmm. But that like that he swore off sequels ever since. So, probably for the best. Or at least until Dumb and Dumber 2 came out. Because, you know, everybody's got to eat. Yeah. But, you know, you know so for the, longest, for the longest time, we had all these sequels to move, to Jim Carrey movies that didn't feature Jim Carrey, you know? Like we had Son of the Mask. We had Ace Ventura Jr. We had a Dumb and Dumber prequel that nobody asked for. <laughs> like, it was, it, they were everywhere. <laughs> it was a weird time. The, the, the late 90s were a very strange time. Yeah, uh, but then The Mask itself is, a, is an interesting beast because it's kind of one part Tex Avery homage, one part sort of uh, uh, big band sort of musical fantasia, and then one part kind of a riff between Batman and Beetlejuice. Hmm. So, well, homage, as my friend Matthew always said, is French for ripoff. I mean, there are scenes in this that are just ripped directly from Tex Avery's Red Hot Riding Hood to the point where they show you Tex Avery's Red Hot Riding Hood. And in the next scene, he basically recreates it. Like, okay, we get it. We like Tex Avery. Yeah, for real. So the the film itself covers... The film is about uh, Stanley Ipkiss, who's played by our friend and yours, Jim Carrey, uh, who's this very timid bank clerk. uh, And he gets the hots for a uh, nightclub singer played by Cameron Diaz in her first film role at age 21. She plays Tina Carlisle. And after getting kicked out of the nightclub, when trying to go see her, he finds this Loki mask. And 
uh, turns into this zoot suit wearing wild man of his wildest fantasies, battles bank robbers and other assorted crime goons and gets the girl. And the thing is, he doesn't need the mask, ultimately, because the real mask was the friends we all made along the way. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about Richard Jenny. That's for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in order to talk about this soundtrack, um, I have to take you to billboarding school real quick. Let's go. Because there's a couple, a couple of really interesting little nuggets that I found out. <clears throat> so this soundtrack uh, debuted on the charts on August 20th, 1994, at number 83. That week on the charts, the numbers one and two albums in America were the soundtracks to The Lion King and Forrest Gump. Oh, boy. Our arch nemesis, Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks, if you're out there. I'm shaking my fist at you. We're sorry, man, but no. You need to answer for your gump crimes. <laughs> uh, but also that week on the charts, so The Mask was 83. Number 82 was Nirvana's Nevermind, which was kind of slowly starting to come down off the charts. Well, so And this yeah. film came out just about three months after uh, Kurt Cobain's suicide. So we're starting to see the end of the grunge era, which is significant. And we'll talk right, about that and, in a minute. Yeah, that, that that's going to be a big a big uh, topic here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, so you can kind of see like the grunge scene is starting to come down, and this new thing that we're about to talk about is on the on the on the ascent. However, uh, this soundtrack peaked uh, the next week at number eighty, which is not notable at all. Except the album at number seventy nine was. Kenny Loggins' Return to Pooh Corner. <laughs> Our old friend Kenny Loggins. Which, Libby, what is what is Return to Pooh Corner? Return to Pooh Corner is a fucking mess, and it's dumb, and I hate it. It is not Danger Zone. It is the absolute opposite of Danger Zone. And that week in America, it was more popular than The Mask. Which is, I'm going to say, disappointing. I love me some K-Log, but no. Yeah, it's, I don't know, just some fun, odd uh, little uh, billboard notes to to point out here. So then uh, that leads us into the soundtrack, which is kind of a strange hybrid of a little bit of New Jack Swing and a little bit of like uh, big band swing revival coming at a moment where one was on the decline and one was about to break big for just a little bit. Mm -hmm. The film is sort of known for two big set pieces. And the first of those takes place in the Coco Bongo Club, which I just want to take a minute and say that that is the dumbest name for a nightclub I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's really dumb. That's like you just envision... It's like, it's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, that would be cute if it was like a bunch of like gorillas and dancing bears and like the gorillas are playing the bongos and a bear is doing like a dance in a hula skirt. Yeah. Like who framed Roger Rabbit is kind of a, the, the third little X factor that's influencing this film because this is like, this wants to be a cartoon so badly and it just isn't. Yes. There was a mask cartoon though. It mm. ran for three seasons. It did not have Jim Carrey in it and it had a crossover episode with the Ace Ventura cartoon, which also ran for three seasons. Oh, my God. I know. Are you guys depressed yet? Hey, uh, one more depressing fact to hit you with. Those two shows both got three seasons. You know what didn't get a third season? The Dumb and Dumber cartoon, which only oh. got one season. That's actually sort of, at least I feel good about that. Like, okay, we didn't go that far. We didn't give that three seasons. I know, right? So, but the big scene. So he gets the mask. He has one night where he robs a bank, and that's sort of his trial night. Yeah. The second night, he puts it on deliberately and goes out to the Coco Bongo Club, where we have Tina Carlisle, and she performs G-Baby Ain't I Good to You. It's not her. It's voice actress Susan Boyd. Now, uh... Just, uh well, 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 just for the sake of, of, of the show, let's go ahead and play a clip of that song here. Yes. For Christmas, diamond ring, a Cadillac and everything. Love makes me treat you the way that I do, G-Baby. 
See, that's not Cameron Diaz. No. Uh, I, th- I thought it might have been because it, it sounds enough like Cameron Diaz to fool you. And be- it's because Susan Boyd is a voice actress rather than a professional jazz singer. Right. So I'm so sure she, she, of, she might have studied Cameron Diaz's voice and said, I can sing like that. Yes. Yeah. But after that, now you have to picture Stanley Ipkiss as the mask, who's known as Big Head in the comic. He's got the yellow zoot suit. He's got the green face. No one seems to notice that he's green. They're just like, whatever. It's L.A. Weirder shit happens. And they take to the floor and dance to Royal Crown Reviews. Hey, Pachuco. And Royal Crown Review is actually the house band at the Coco Bongo Club. Right. So, um, okay. okay. So one of the first things we see in the entire film, Jim Carrey as Stanley Ipkiss is giving his coworker uh, tickets to the, the, the Coco Bongo Club. And what, who is the band on the, on the ticket? It's Royal Crown Review. Yeah. So let's, let's play a clip of, uh, okay. of Hey, Pachuco. things about this song uh royal crown review formed in 1989 and this song appeared on their 1991 album the kings of gangster bop this version also then appeared in the mask in 1994 it was re-recorded in 1995 for their warner brothers uh or sorry their uh warner label debut mugsy's move which has a different verse um and is actually a little more uh, sort of that noir kind of gangster sound. But this is where we start to see the first inklings of what would become the neo-swing revival of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody sort of credits swingers with starting that, but it was actually The Mask by two years. If if Swingers started it at all, it's because that's the movie that made it okay for the cool kids to like it. I guess. Because but... the mask is not cool. <laughs> no. But the the Swing Revival had sort of started around L.A. Uh, a couple years earlier. And the mask brought it to the mainstream, brought it to sort of the rest of the country. From here, Royal Crown Review actually got a standing uh, date at the Derby. Oh, wow. Or a swing night. They became the house band there, uh, which went on for years. And actually, their contract uh, with Warner kept them from being in the film Swingers, even though it took place at the Derby. And so they oh. were replaced with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy as the house band in Swingers. It's a little bit of a, a rivalry there. But when we think about the Neo Swing revival, Keep in mind, Grunge has just seen its sort of founder taken from us. And Swing is the complete opposite of Grunge. It's big. It's loud. It is elaborate. You have these huge bands with horn sections. Everybody gets dressed up. It requires social dancing. It's it's just so far removed. And so it's almost a swing of a pendulum. Yeah, because because grunge itself was like a, a reaction to like the hair metal and the butt rock of like the mid to late eighties, mm-hmm. where it was it was all about like you know teased out hair and spandex and and rocking out and getting ladies and partying hard, and that's just not what grunge was about at all. It was let's let's be angry and sad and play as heavy as we can, and then mm-hmm. when that fell off then the pendulum swung hard towards swing revival yes and it's it's a little surprising that it took another two years for swingers which sort of brought it in and then in 1998 we had the uh the infamous gap commercial set to brian setzer's uh jump dive and whale and brian setzer actually appears on this soundtrack uh, he's got a song called Straight Up that's playing when they first roll up to the Coco Bongo Club. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our first inkling that no. this has that that swing soundtrack. 
Yeah. So real quick, though, like what was your first um, exposure to like the swing revival type of music? Probably this, because I did see this in theaters. Um, it didn't catch on again until uh, probably 1998 when I was in high school and I was in show choir and Jim McCumber, who was very cute, had uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy's uh, debut album uh, in ah. his car and he would play it for me when he drove me back from choir practice. Oh, nice. Okay. So I've always been a big fan. I love Neo Swing and sort of unabashedly so. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love, love, love Royal Crown Review. Uh, that album, Muggsy's Move, was a big, big uh, player in grad school. I used to listen to that all the time. And you can kind of see it if you go back and read some of my earlier works. You could just, it's like drenched in that sort of pastiche. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, even when I was in college, which was the, the, in the early aughts, they would still have swing nights. And I was very popular with them because I'm, like thin and lightweight and so you can just flip me all over like i don't care if anybody sees my underpants you all see my record saturday you know that like don't care <laughs> right yeah so now what about you how was what was your first introduction to neo swing libby your answer is so much cooler than mine it's kind of embarrassing <laughs> my first introduction what about to swing? show choir how cool could it be well just hold on buckle up because i'm getting ready to take you on a very short ride <laughs> My first real exposure to like neo swing and that, or just swing in general, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to have to even say this. In the early 90s, like even pre the mask, the Chips Ahoy company had a series of commercials that used uh, Benny Goodman's Sing 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 as their theme song. That was the first time I'd ever heard this thing called swing music. And that's. I still associate that with with cookies in my head. That's adorable. Cookies are great. Chips Ahoy yeah. is great. Hey, <laughs> Chips Ahoy, if you're listening, we got you. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really funny, though. And the thing but with like, the Swing Revival was that it just kind of petered out. It was like a thing, and then it wasn't. Yeah, people. everyone just kind of collectively agreed, like, this isn't fun anymore. I mean, it was always kind of fun, but like... This isn't cool anymore, I guess I should say. Yeah, and and it's a lot. I mean, it definitely you have to you have to get dressed up. You have to know how to dance. It was it was a fad and then it was it was over. I feel like we could we we'll touch on on the threads that led to this a little later. But I feel like uh 1999's Mambo number no. 5, which had that big band sound, although it was, um, you know, had more of a Latin influence. Mm-hmm. I feel like that put the death knell in it. Just like, you know what? No, this is stupid. Wow. You know, I hadn't even thought about that until you said Mambo number no. five. But yeah, you're, you're really right. Yeah. Like that was kind of kind of it. Um, did you ever own a fedora? I did not. No, I definitely did. But it's cute on a girl. Um, I have learned that if you see a dude in a fedora, just keep fucking walking. Mm-hmm. They're Pretty bad much. news. Yeah, they're always bad news. There's so. really anymore. There's really only one or two instances where it's a, it's okay to wear a fedora, and you have to be like over seventy years old, <laughs> or at a Halloween party and dress as Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, you know what? You know who else can get away with uh, wearing a hat like that is Elvis Costello. He's I'll only sixty-eight, so yeah, I'll um, allow it. Yeah, that's it. He's grandfathered in. Everybody yeah, else. Six- no. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so you have this big, and, and in the film, it's, you know, they do this whole big elaborate cartoony uh, swing routine. What kind of pisses me off is that no one else is dancing. They're all just like watching him like, get on the fucking dance floor. There's nothing worse than being at a swing night and being the only person on the dance floor. I mean, my only defense there is like, they're very obviously watching a performance. I guess, but it's still like clearly... There's a band. There's a dance floor. They want you to dance. Put down your fucking drink and get down there. Um, I have seen Royal Crown Review. They were mm-hmm. terrible. Really? Yeah, they sucked. They just had like, no energy, and they finished with a cover of Viva Las Vegas. I'm like, are you shitting me? Ooh, it was yeah. bad. That's, and they didn't do anything news. off Muggsy's move. I was so mad. That's, that's a shame. Yeah. It was a free concert, but still. I have seen <laughs> Big Bad Voodoo Daddy three times. I've met the band. They're wonderful. They signed a poster for me. I love them. That's I still cool. listen to them. Yeah, they're cool. they're very cool. So. 
awesome. All right. Well, um, moving on, I guess, the other big set piece in this film, the, the one that I think everybody's kind of – when I say everybody, I mean specifically me. Everybody's <laughs> roommate loved this song for some strange reason. <laughs> we all have that friend. Mine is named the- Corey. Mm-hmm. My name is An- mine's, mine's are named Andrew and Shane. There were two of them. <laughs> One okay. The scene is after the first nightclub sequence when the mask and Tina have this big, amazing, fantastic dance. Um, she comes to Stanley and says, "I would like to meet the mask again," and he says, "I can set that up for you because I happen to know happen to know the guy," and so. He and Tina go out and have this kind it's kind of a quote unquote romantic date at landfill park. Mm. Like the set pieces and like the background stuff is is probably better than the actual film. Like the, the the fact that the park is built on a landfill and is causing this like methane excretion of like green gas and pink gas and stuff is just neat. Yeah, and then it's actually just called landfill park. Yeah, but, like no They're shame. Not hiding it. No shame at all. <laughs> and this scene is one of those scenes where I'm sure in the 90s it was somehow acceptable, but now it just seems really rapey. Yeah, it it turns the character of the mask like on a dime because in that first scene you're like, okay, he's just kind of showing off what he can do, and he's you know he's performing. And then when he gets to like this this date night with Tina, he is 100% Pepe Le Pew like potential rapist. Yeah, and it's not it's not cute. It's not funny. And I know we shouldn't you know, criticize film through a modern lens, but I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't point out like, Hey, that's, well, you know, not okay. What's worth pointing out is that how much differently, how differently that scene plays today than it did 25 yeah. years ago. Like it's yeah. not an easy watch anymore for mm-hmm. a number of reasons, but so he's accosted by the police. Tina gets away. And as he, as the mask is making his getaway, the SWAT team shows up. And the and, reason I want to point out, they're yes. not bothering him because he's, you know, sex pesting on Tina, that he robbed a bank prior to the previous set piece. Yeah, and the <laughs> Lieutenant Kellerman uh, basically fingers him, like, right away. He's like, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. So they're after him already. Mm-hmm. But when the SWAT team shows up and the mask does his sort of cartoon freak out where, the, where his skull comes out of his face as he screams... He has a plan, and the plan is he's going to perform uh, Cuban Pete, which, as I said, is the favorite song of everybody's weird friend or strange roommate. <laughs> so let's go to a clip. I'm the craze of my native street. When I start to dance, everything goes chick chicky boom chick chicky boom The senoritas that sing and how they swing with that umbero. It's very nice. So full of spice. And when the dancing they bring a happy All right, so this song actually bookends the soundtrack. There's two versions of this song on this stupid <laughs> CD. The first version uh, comes to us. It's a remix done by what I'm assuming is CNC Music Factory. It's called the CNC Pop Radio Edit. And it is a nightmare. It's basically like the original audio of Carrie singing the song put to a dance beat and then remix with lines from the movie just all oh over God. the place. It's awful. It's horrifying. It's like... I mean, because Jim Carrey is is so manic and so horrific anyway. And that was just, you know, it was it was what we found funny in the early 90s. But that is just it's it just sounds like cocaine. It's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, like like carry in a vacuum is uh, is one thing, but then when you're cherry picking like the one liners and putting them all together, it's a it's a lot to take. Yeah, <laughs> just that like headache inducing dance beat underneath, mm-hmm. and like I'm just trying to picture being at a nightclub in my '90s best. I mean, I was 11 when this film came out, but go bear with me. I was nightclubbing with I guess Drew Barrymore. Um, sure, <laughs> and. I can't imagine wanting to dance to this. <laughs> it doesn't like that doesn't make sense. I'd rather dance to Mambo number five. Why exactly do they make songs like this? Because there's a lot of soundtracks albums that I have that have songs that are just dance beats made up of lines from the movie. 
I what don't is that? Know. I don't know. I like. Does anybody listen to those? Do those actually get played in clubs? Did you dance in clubs in the '90s? Let us know at OST Party on Twitter. Because the one I'm thinking of off the top of my head, there's a, a a dance like remix song on the Fifth Element soundtrack that is oh nothing but just lines and clips from the movie, and it's excruciating. That's weird. Okay, now we got to do the Fifth Element soundtrack. I can't wait. There's uh, nothing. There's nothing on it. It's just that. I just want to talk about that for an hour. Um, okay. yeah, I don't get the the dance remix thing. I just I I don't know who listens to them. Okay, so we've established that it's terrible. <laughs> now, it's the first, the opening song on the soundtrack. Yes. So if you're putting this on and just listening start to finish, you have you will have a very hard time getting through the first song. <laughs> Unless you're on coke. And then the final track, track number 12, is called Cuban Pete, the Arkin Movie Mix, which is really just the, the scene from the movie, like, put on the soundtrack. And it's yes. fine. Yes. Now... One of the things that I I wouldn't say I was surprised to realize, because why not? You know, mm. he just rips off everybody else. But yeah. uh, Cuban Pete is actually a Desi Arnaz tune from a film of the same name. And uh, there's something about Jim Carrey, a white dude from Canada, kind of in... Like doing the like Cuban voice, so basically brown face. He's kind of doing brown face, green green brown face. Yeah, mm. and it, it's just on the on the one hand he does it well, but on the other hand he shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, I mean it's minstrelsy. It is, and it's so embarrassing because I think the worst part about it is you can't find the original version. Of Cuban Pete. This is one of those films that's just sort of lost. You might be able to find on YouTube a, you know, kind of scratchy version of when Desi Arnaz did it on I Love Lucy. That's it. it. The Jim Carrey version is what pops up first, and that's what populates the search. So we've sort of lost, you know, this this treasure that Desi Arnaz, a fucking legend. Right. The, so- the song is out there. You can get the song easy, but the actual, like, film it comes from kind of impossible nowadays yeah so you know not everything gets preserved but it's kind of disappointing when you you look you try to look for the original and you really just find jim carrey mugging it up yeah and so i guess we'll talk about the way we produced the show the first time we recorded this show i did not know that this song had come from anything before so you you instructed me on that and i learned something yes Um, well this show aims to be educational Absolutely. For one of us, at least. <laughs> but um, in talking about this film with uh, some of my coworkers, I found out that like one of them does remember Cuban Pete and does remember Desi Arnaz. And like, so that knowledge is still out there. People still remember this stuff. It's just it's starting to fade away. Yeah. So get out there. Try to find the original and, you know, support support the real versions. I'm fine with cover versions. I'm not super cool with minstrelsy. No. I mean, uh, and support films. Watch classic films, people. Just yeah. watch a film older than 1970. So at some point, the the mask is going to become classic. And just be like, what have we done as a society? Oh, God. It will no. outlive us all. But the other thing, the hard part about this, it's really easy to, to criticize this and to point out its sort of problematic nature. Mm-hmm. But this scene is also incredibly fun and well done. And I'm not going to lie and pretend that I'm, I'm above that. I'm a trash person, just like all of you. So it's a, it's a really, really well choreographed scene and it's really fun. And sorry that, you know, we have to kind of ruin it for everybody, but there you have it. I mean, it, it's, it's the curse of living in the modern era. You have to acknowledge these things and you have to be cognizant of it. But at the same time, like, as long as you're willing to accept it and acknowledge it, like, sure, it's fine to in, to watch and enjoy Cuban Pete on the mask. It's, it yeah. is what it is. It's just, you know, know your history, basically. Yeah, and use it as, an, as a starting off point to go back and find the original and celebrate, uh, you know, the, especially the, when you think of the legacy of, of Desi Arnaz, mm-hmm. of, of being, you know, a Latino performer in really kind of extremely white days of television. 
It's it's interesting though that that we're we're talking about this song in the context of the Max because earlier we were talking about uh, Mambo Number no. Five and how <laughs> that kind of ki- helped kick off sort of the Latin explosion of like ninety nine two thousand two thousand one, and this predates that in a really odd kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only. There's actually there are actually Latino artists uh, on the set or mm-hmm. sorry on the soundtrack. Um. And uh, specifically, K7's uh, Heidi Ho. Yes. Um, which, That's the big one. Yeah. And uh, which actually samples Minnie the Moocher. So which, you know, kind of keeps with uh, the film's theme of stealing from other stuff. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I'm not well, going to begrudge people for sampling. No. Um, but let's let's go ahead and get into that. Because, I mean, that's kind of the next big piece of the mask puzzle i think yes is is heidi ho so at the very end of the at the end of the film the third act uh stanley has broken out of jail having been framed and captured and put in in jail and he's going back to the nightclub because dorian has dorian the villain played by peter green has has stolen the mask and is using it himself to get back at his uh gang boss by blowing up the gang and then blowing up the nightclub rather and then shooting his boss and then murdering cameron diaz i'm not really sure why Sure, why not? Because she's because she likes Stanley now, and we can't have that. I guess. So toxic masculinity, yo. <laughs> this this whole movie is toxic masculinity writ large. Yes, and one day they'll probably make a a film about Dorian where he's the hero, and it'll get it'll win a fucking Oscar. Mask Origins. Jesus Ugh. Christ. God. And we'll have all of these think pieces about are, is is culture is popular culture ready for a Dorian origin story? <laughs> are we re- prepared for what this is going to do to society? And the answer will be, yeah, it's fine. Fuck yeah, it. we fucking deserve it. Honestly, <laughs> Who gives a shit? we're garbage. So, so anyway, the the final set piece of the film is you know Stanley has to go back to the nightclub and stop Dorian from blowing things up and killing Tina. And at the establishing shot of this nightclub in the third act is. Um, uh, K7's Heidi Ho. Let's go to a clip. I used to hang out with this kid from Brooklyn who stole my girl when I wasn't looking. That fuck tried to play me out, but I'ma set him up on the right road. Yeah, you see him catching him at the local disco. It doesn't matter if it's New York or Frisco. I'm gonna put that head to bed, and when it's over, the subject is dead. Howdy, 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 howdy. So this is, yeah, like the song that plays as we're in, kind of introduced to the final nightclub set piece where there's like a charity ball going on. There's lots of people, lots of money, lots of fancy stuff. And then this song is playing. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a modern riff on um, the Cab Calloway song, Minnie the Moocher, where they, they use the uh, the call and response, the, the Heidi Heidi Ho's as the chorus of the song it's, it's I, I enjoy this song a lot actually i really really like it um it's uh from his album swing baby swing and and uh we've we've got a couple of these uh these songs where we see uh hip-hop artists going going smooth going to to jazz and uh we saw something similar uh if you ever listened to the dick tracy soundtrack ice t uh former singer of Cop Killa, now SVU detective, uh, does the soundtrack, does the title theme as a, like a 1940s jazz piece and just fucking knocks it out of the park. And I, I that's like a weird specific genre that I really like. Uh, yeah. When when rappers do, uh, when, when they go to, to swing and to jazz, Queen Latifah did it. Um, there's the other piece, uh, Domino's The Business of Love, which is also on this soundtrack. Same kind of thing. And they've got real jazz chops, and I love it. And the music video for uh, Heidi Ho is really neat, too, because Cab Calloway shows up as, uh, I guess, K7's grandfather to tell him <laughs> to tell him a story. And it's basically like the whole, the whole video is like a flashback to uh, the time in the 40s when he had to, uh, he had to, to get rid of somebody who was moving in on his girl. Yeah, which and, is the which is the plot of the song. Yeah, and also the plot of the scene that we're in. Set the nightclub. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah, that's that's perfect. <laughs> Idea is uh is the mask from Dorian's point of view. Yeesh. Now I don't like it anymore. 
<laughs> no, it's a great song. <laughs> oh, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, this was I I remember this was the other song that was like the big the one that they used to like sell the movie. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you saw I remember this very clearly. Like you saw TV. Uh, commercials and, and ads and previews and stuff. This was the song they played. Like the mask trailer, I remember this very clearly. The first half of the trailer was like a weird Beetlejuice sound alike. <laughs> and then Heidi Ho. <laughs> the well, the, uh, uh, well, the soundtrack, the score rather, was done by a man named uh, Randy Edelman. And we realized through research that. Uh, Randy Edelman is what you get when you leave Danny Elfman in a hot car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. Now, the mask cartoon, I want to point out, the theme to that riffed on Hey Pachuco. Ooh, really? Yeah. So, wow. uh, you know, riff-offs abound. The mask cartoon, by the way, is a fascinating piece of 90s weirdness because it is just... You can find some of it on YouTube. It is just picture like Robin Williams, the genie, and now just water that down to just like the dumbest, blandest pop culture riffs. And congratulations, you've got the mask, the coon. And he basically just fights like a villain of the week. The one I watched, he fought a guy that turned into a bee. <laughs> you know, I never I, in the day I never saw the mask. I didn't either. Just, I missed it. Like, when was it on? Who watched it? Did you watch it? Did anybody? It ran for three seasons, and yet nobody knows about it? Right, yeah. And, like, the only disc, like, copy of it I could find anywhere was just, like, the pilot episode, the pilot two-part episode on one disc. I'm not paying $5 No, but it's, I mean, the conspiracy's about. You just red string all over the walls. (laughs) Pepe Silva. Oh, my God. So, Randy Edelman... Is one of those composers who, uh, he, you know, his name isn't really out there. He's not one of the. He's not a John Williams, basically, but he's extremely prolific. In 1994 alone, he did the scores for Greedy, Angels in the Outfield, The Mask, and Pontiac Moon. And I'm only going to say this because it's the next one on the list. Uh, in '95, he did Billy Madison. <laughs> his most recent. As I said, he's very prolific. His most recent was the direct-to-video Backdraft 2. Oh, my. <laughs> so this guy definitely gets work, and he's been working since the 70s, so good yeah, for him. right on. I'm sure this will not the, be the, the last time we run into him. Probably but, not. But also, you know, the mask like score is, is actually a really nice piece of work. It is. It's, it's very whimsical and very light, but also has kind of a, that it has those dark undertones to it that really make the com- more comic booky parts pop. Although... I like it it's a lot. it's got you know it's got those those swing beats but you know who did that better you're gonna hate me for saying this Mark Isham's Cool World score did that a lot better so you know <laughs> I'll I'll allow it I get it I see yeah it. <laughs> so n- 1994 between the mask and the and and parts of Cool World, although we didn't see it on the uh, the soundtrack proper, more in the score and the look, was again as we said, it was the the ground zero of the neo swing revival. So show your respect. It's not just gap khakis. Respect. That's right. <laughs> All right. So uh, where do you want to go from here? Because we've been jumping around a lot on this soundtrack. So uh, Libby, uh, what's what's another standout track to you? Kind of the big one, the one that got the video was uh, Escapes Who's That Man? Let's play a clip. kind of classic 90s R&B. It's lush, it's gorgeous, it's got those four-part harmonies, and it's kind of depressing that it's wasted on a song about the hero in a Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> because it, it, it literally is a song about the man behind the mask. Who is that man? And Stanley Ipkiss <laughs> is not that great. I mean, he's pretty obnoxious as the mask, but 
Stanley, they make a point of being like, well, he's a really nice guy. And, but we all know, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but we all know the nice guy is the fucking worst. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's a doormat. He's not particularly exciting. He's just kind of like, ah, oh, he works at a bank. That's, he's just a guy, you know? Yeah, and that's I nothing mean, bad, but that's doing the bare minimum to not be a serial killer is not really what you need to be <laughs> like a pussy magnet. Right, exactly. You need to be more like Richard Jenny, <laughs> who has no problem just going going straight up to strange women and hitting on them, <laughs> and then being okay if he gets rejected. You yeah, know? shoot your shot, but keep going. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, this this movie introduced me to the phrase hopeless romantic at a time when I didn't know what either of those <laughs> words meant. And I feel like it did more damage to our generation than anything else. Oh my god, yes. Like just the the misattributed uh moniker hopeless romantic, which in this film kind of just means uh, Stanley Epkins is a sad sack. He wants to be the cool guy, but he knows he can't be. Yeah, so he has to Is the mask a metaphor for drugs? Hmm. I mean, the mask is a metaphor for having no shame. I guess, but it's like, you don't need the mask to be cool. You could swing dance all your own. Right. I mean, he even lied and said that he taught the mask all of his own moves. So if if you you could fake it till you make it, and you've already made it, so, you know. But, like, the first thing that he does when he meets Tina... Like, Tina sees his uh, necktie, and she's like, oh, that's like one of those inkblot tests. And he fucking corrects her. It's a Rorschach test, he says. <laughs> he fansplays her right off the top. Right from the jump. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, do man. not be like Stanley Ipkiss. And, you know, to his credit, like, he learns confidence from the mask, and he throws the mask in the river, and his dog Milo and Richard Jenny go after it. And honestly, I want to see that film where, like, the two of them just, like, do whimsical crimes and, and fight crimes <laughs> with the mask. Like, that's the sequel I wanted. I fight crimes with my best friend's dog, and also against my best friend's dog. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch Yeah, that. at one point, um, Milo does get the mask and bites people, and it's simultaneously horrifying and awesome. The special effects in this, I will say, do hold up. They were very, very early mm-hmm. uh, computer generated, but they actually look pretty good. Yeah, like they use them just enough. Like they use them when they need to, but they don't overdo mm-hmm. it. And there's a lot that a lot of this movie is still done with like uh, cell animation when they have to and just wacky props when they have to. But they, they only use this, the CG when they absolutely need to like show a heart jumping out of the chest mm-hmm. or his face turning into a wolf. And um, to Jim Carrey's credit, I don't think we give Jim Carrey credit enough for being a performer. And I think that a lot of that has to do with that 90s style of comedy that he was doing, which was just referential and very fourth wall breaking. Like, he never seemed to perform with the other actors in the room. We talked about that back on Batman Forever. But uh, he was not really supposed to speak with uh, the sort of oversized incisors that went with the mask. He learned to talk through them and gave the character this sort of Edward G. Robinson kind of Cagney 30s voice. And you know what? Props to him for for working working with his character, working with his makeup and his props to create something. So and and yet and yet somehow for some reason, Rami Malek won an Oscar for putting on fake teeth and singing Queen songs. <sighs> I don't get lip syncing really Queen songs. If, lip syncing Queen songs, he didn't even have to give, sing. Give Jim Carrey his Oscar. No, just kidding. Don't seriously, he doesn't deserve one. I mean, the Truman Show is pretty good. Mm. Truman Show's yeah, all right. Let's move on. So, <laughs> but no, I want to just going very quickly back to uh, who's that man? It does use this sort of uh, box brand '40s jam that works here. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this would later be used for evil. This sort of standard, like this is what the '40s sound like, uh, karaoke beat. Um. I just want to take this time to call out Christina Aguilera for her. Oh, no. I know for uh, 2006's Back to Basics, which used a very similar style 
to Who's That Man? But it was just her and her big stupid voice, her yell singing. I'm sorry, you can't just put on red lipstick and be like, I'm from the 40s, yo. Shut the fuck up and sit down. You're not from the 40s. You're like a 24-year-old skank. Platinum blonde hair is not a prerequisite. Yeah. And so props in that same vein, going back to Susan Boyd, for doing a kind of subtle Marilyn Monroe style singing for uh for cameron diaz again with with that performance they are kind of chasing the jessica rabbit thing absolutely and and, but but they pull it off well enough because she's not supposed to be like this larger than life character she's just some girl who has to sing a song yeah and she always seems very not bored by the mask but not she never really reacts and cameron diaz is fine i always thought of her as kind of like the slutty uh jennifer aniston because Jennifer Aniston is a prude, and everybody knows it. Mm. Well, I mean, like uh, Cameron Diaz would like get more comfortable as an actress. Like her in her in in uh, there's something about Mary. Like she's great in that. She's movie. very funny. This she seems a little just like eh, there's a green guy and he's swinging me around. Okay, I'm tied up now. He's gonna put a bomb on my feet. Like she just seems very blasé about the whole thing. Would you say that she's a little uh, green in this movie? Shut up. <laughs> Stop it. Shit, what was that? Oh, yeah. But also, like, the the Escape song, like, it even gets, like, the music video mm-hmm. for this album. And it's 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 the group, you know, singing in kind of a nightclub setting, wearing these zoot suit kind of things. And it just keeps cutting back and forth to random scenes from the movie. That's pretty standard for this kind of a soundtrack song. Yes. Really. Yes, indeed. Um, and what I thought was kind of interesting on the credits for this is it's not just this and then into the orchestral score. There's actually two more songs under escape there's um harry connick jr's if i could only whisper your name which is an utterly baffling song because it's allegedly from his funk album oh i don't want to hear the phrase harry connick jr funk album ever again i'm really not entirely sure what a harry connick jr is is it like a singing brent like brendan fraser i don't know i know he was in independence day he's kind of the goose of independence day but that's i mean you pretty much nailed it that's exactly what it is i mean he's uh, i couldn't pick him out of a lineup of one like is he a country star is he funky i don't know there's like an entire genre of like musicians who think they can act and it's like harry connick jr and john bon jovi and randy travis and that's basically it (laughs) okay yeah i mean i i found this track baffling because it's not really funky like okay you have a horn section in there it's still too twangy it's not funky this is one of one of uh two actual songs on the soundtrack that i skipped like i i got a minute into it i was like all right i'm done this is this is nothing yeah it's should we we play a clip from this song to i think we have to do this is okay here you go people somebody was spreading rumors about better days are coming I'm sorry, what were we even talking about? <laughs> and, th- and then uh, after this on the credits, uh, we got uh, Bounce Around by Tony, Tony, Tony. So Now, Libby, uh, tell us a little bit about this song. Yeah, it's, um, it's New Jack Swing, which yeah, was yeah. a sort of... Uh, side version of hip-hop it was a little more melodic janet jackson basically invented it uh on her album control we're gonna give janet jackson credit because she's amazing um i do like that this was included um on this i think it's kind of a nice a nice piece of it again that this isn't just like an all-white soundtrack yeah, yeah. I mean, and this this with Who's That Man, like, back-to-back, it's a pretty good, like, back-to-back little number of kind of late, I guess, late New Jack Swing, because mm-hmm. it was also kind of on the wane at this point, too. Yeah, it um, but- it kind of started, like I said, in the mid-'80s um, or from Janet Jackson's album Control in 1986. It was very big in the New York club scene, which... Mm-hmm. Again, we think of, of Neil Swing as an L.A. thing. And so to have those two meet 
and then be distributed all over the United States, it shows again how important soundtracks are in getting music that you might not otherwise hear out to, you know, out to the populace. Right, yeah. So that's, you know, part of part of why we do this and why we think soundtracks are important. Mm-hmm. If you're living, you know, somewhere in Ohio, how much access are you going to have to to Neo Swing, to New Jack Swing? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. It's, I think it's important. So, so props to The Mask for at least... For for doing a lot, there's actually there's even a ska track on here, on um, although this is what kind of sort of yeah yeah kind of, sort of and I want to talk about this because this makes me mad as a neo swing purist. <laughs> uh, uh, we're talking of course about Fishbone's uh, "Let the Good Times Roll," and let's uh, let's play a clip. Fishbones Let the Good Times Roll. It's a cover of a Louis Jordan song from 1946. Um, and it it does, it's got that that swing sound. Fishbone is a ska band. And a couple ska bands jumped on the Neo Swing revival. Uh, most famously is uh, the Cherry Pop and Daddies from Eugene, Oregon, uh, who came on uh, later. Just just the worst band name ever. <laughs> oh my God, it's... <laughs> yeah, it, they suck. And, you know, Zoot Suit Riot, of course, has played it like every fucking school dance. But right, yeah. it's one of those albums that, like, when I listen to, I'm really embarrassed. But, um... <laughs> I don't I don't love Fishbone. I feel like I should. Ska was just one of those things I could take about two songs and then I'm out. And a lot of the worst people I've ever known are like huge ska fans. Yeah, like Fishbone's a weird case because like there's a couple of their really early songs that I absolutely love. Like I'd really love, you know, Party at Ground Zero. Um a couple of And they're hugely like, influential and they've been around I, for fucking ever. But I, I basically I like everything that Fishbone does that's not ska, more or less. <laughs> like I like that it's kind of a more. It feels like a pure version of what the chili, the Red Hot Chili Peppers tried to yeah. do, and I enjoy that more than I enjoy anything by Anthony Kiedis. What about uh, his cover of Love Roller Coaster on the Beavis and Butthead to America soundtrack? That's not a Chili Peppers original, and you I know. know. No, I. <laughs> <laughs> I like. The Day of the Dead kind of sound that they bring to this with the kind of mm-hmm. dull, uh, the dull echo of the backup singers. Yeah. But this just isn't, this to me is is not a real standout track. It's not. And the way they use it in the film isn't, doesn't help it either. Like it's, a, it's another one of those establishing shots of the Coco Bongo Club. Uh, and this, this is the song that kind of accompanies it to get us back into that scene. Yeah. Now, so, it's yeah. weird. It's, oh. it's not. No, sorry. Go on. So it's like it's not remarkable in and of itself. Uh, it's it's kind of more just for the uh, the big band kind of uh, the horn section, and that's pretty much kind of it. the aesthetic of it. Like we get it. It's like a yeah. swinging nightclub. Yeah, like 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 that that part of the soundtrack, that part of the film could have just been like uh, the Randy Edelman score, bringing in a little bit of that swing sound just for yeah, a or more Brian no, they, they found yeah, exactly. Or they no, they found uh, the, the Fishbone and had them covered with the Good Times. Yeah, role, so. All it's right. fine, and that could be our uh, our under the covers. But uh, there you go. We, well, we there's a actually we didn't even talk about that, but um, you know the K seven track is kind of technically falls under that heading as, as well. does Cuban Pete. Yes, absolutely. So so we neglected on under the covers. There you go. We had bigger there we had bigger go. things to talk about. Really, <laughs> we had bitter bigger fish to fry. <laughs> so is there anything else you want to talk about with the mask? Anything we missed? Um, I feel bad that we're not going to have anything to say about the Vanessa Williams song. Mm. But just like uh, Harry Connick Jr., I listen, I heard it and I thought, what am I listening to? Oh, right. This is still The Mask. I, I it's, It sounds like it came from some com- some other planet, basically. Yeah, it's filler. Every soundtrack's got it's, them, but... It's fine, but it's just, it doesn't, it's not The Mask, no. you know? 
No, it isn't. But, you know, again, props to getting women and people of color on this soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm not I'm not besmirching any of that. Yeah. It's just it, it's not a standout track and it doesn't. I mean, it plays over the. Inc- no, we don't even know where yeah. it plays. We couldn't find it. So, this one just I have a. I have a feeling they use like the orchestral sting at the beginning to like punctuate a scene, but they didn't use any of Vanessa Williams's actual. Singing. No, because you know we would have recognized that beautiful voice. Oh, ab- absolutely, <laughs> we would have. So it, yeah, it's here too. <laughs> if you want to listen, sure, why not? So I guess uh, if there's nothing else to discuss about this album, uh, it's time to kind of wrap things up and pr- present our final thoughts. Yes, uh, Libby, does, does this hang together as a full you know album? Yes. The, mo- the soundtrack hangs together much better than the movie. I agree 100%. Like a million times better. And this is one of the soundtracks I I was really surprised. Uh, you know, you think about I learned things too in billboarding school that this didn't do better because it seemed like something that I heard a lot. That- right. And, and so much of what we talk about tonight is how this is like a flashpoint for like the swing revival. And it kind of wasn't. Yeah, it, it really? was a kind of a false start, I guess. It it put that in our our national consciousness, and then by the time nineteen ninety six hit, we were we were ready. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, we didn't even talk about the Brian Setzer Orchestra. We talked. We touched on them briefly. Um, although, actually, if we want to talk about it, well, let's yeah, let's just let's just go ahead and play straight up because honestly, straight up's pretty good. Here we go. And now it's fun that we talk about Brian Setzer today because last last time when we talked about the Blasters, they were contemporaries of Brian Setzer's previous band, the Stray Cats, in that rockabilly era. Yeah. So yes. the, the rockabilly revival in the early 80s. And so he's he is sort of an old soul on that, keeping these traditions alive. Right. And this was also like contemporaneous with like Brian Setzer Orchestra's first album too. Mm-hmm. So this was like right when he was getting into this this genre himself. Yeah. And uh, you know, we we see kind of the granddaddies of this movement forming now and starting to play out. Um I really like this. It's got it's a uh, it's got that kind of clean classic swing sound, whereas uh some of the later ones, uh especially Royal Crown Review is their with kind of their later albums tried to do more of a gangster kind of sound. Yeah. And this is just like clean swing for beginners. You got the cocktail allegories for love. You got that call. Hey, bartender. It's an easy song to get people on the dance floor. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an easy one to like too. It's very, uh, very listenable. Yes. So, um, so I think we, it's not much of a piece of the puzzle of the mask, but it's, it's definitely one worth, you know, listening to. Yeah. So, I, for my part, it really kind of bummed me out to watch this film again after so many years and realize, like, oh, it's, it actually isn't as good as I remember. No. Like, the big the big musical set pieces are great, and every time Jim Carrey is the mask, like, it's fun to look at, but, man, this is kind of a depressing movie about sad sex trying to woo women. Yeah, trying to woo women who are way out of their fucking leagues. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and it's it's a product of its time. Mm-hmm. It's it mm-hmm. very much when you look at it as a kind of '90s set piece. You're like, "Yep, this is what we liked in the '90s." Like, it's it it's fine. It's not. There's a there's a lot to criticize about it. And if this was a movie criticism podcast, we could go a lot deeper. Oh, absolutely! Fucking ton. It's so it's so problematic. But <laughs> I mean, there are I think maybe four or five women in this. Uh, and there, and and there's there's exactly two uh, people of color in this entire film too, mm-hmm. and one of them one gets of, killed. One 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 of whom is Reggie Cathy, the great, the late great Reggie Cathy, who gets killed like in his first scene, <laughs> and the other is the mayor of Edge City, who gets like two lines in the entire film. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a, a it's a product of its time, and yeah. and definitely when you sort of look at it as as the beginning of this movement it's sort of more fascinating than the movie is itself yeah 
and I think it still holds up as like a, a special effects film, definitely. Like, yeah, it, it it was nominated for an Oscar for its special effects, and it lost to goddamn Forrest Gump. What special effects did Forrest Gump fucking have? The guy ran they, around; he had mud on his face. He, I guess, Lieutenant Dan. I don't know. They put Tom Hanks in the old TV footage to make it look like he was actually showing LBJ his butt cheeks. I don't know. <sighs> it's just this is a long, long line of uh, of shitty movies winning Oscars. <laughs> what a shame. So, Joe, uh, this was my pick, and I'm sorry. Uh, what are we doing next week? Well, now that you've ruined another part of my childhood. Sorry, man. Uh, next week, you know, it's, it's another one of our... Um, you know, fifth episodes, so we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, next time on the show will be our 20th episode, which is another one of those uh, weird uh, fifth episodes we like to do. Uh, and this time, we are going to be counting down our top 10 uh, 80s soundtrack cuts Ooh. from albums we otherwise probably wouldn't ever talk about. So we're going to get those those random hits ready, and we're going to hit shuffle. Oh, this is going to be fun. It's going to be a ton of fun. I've already got my list kind of kind of made up, so... Uh, Prepare yourself, Libby. Yeah, I'm interested to see what you come up with. I'm going to pull out some weird ones. I guarantee it. Oh, I'm ready. All right. Well, uh, that does it for the OST party. So if you have any uh, questions or comments, or if you want to recommend a soundtrack for us to do on a future episode, you can get those to us a few different ways. You can email that to us at ostpartypod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at ostparty. Uh, Libby, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, first, I want to say, don't forget to take our poll, which we'll post uh, shortly after this episode uh, oh, airs. Oh, yes, thank you. But um, afterwards, you can find me on Twitter, at Libby Cudmore, or you can uh, listen to me over at uh, the Shattered Shield podcast. We're starting season four on September 30th. Mm, sounds like fun. I'm excited. <laughs> so, Joe, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cordial Wombat or on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps. Uh, we talk about Christmas movies all year round. This month, we are currently in the middle of a Vince Vaughn marathon. Oh, boy. Uh, we just did Four Christmases. We're gearing up for Fred Claus. It's going to be a time, everybody. That guy owns nothing but bowling shirts. You know that, right? He is a bowling shirt made into a person. <laughs> he and Guy Fieri. <laughs> and Steve Smashmouth. And Steve Smashmouth, and just Charlie Sheen in general. Like, they're all the same person. <laughs> oh. Uh, so, for OST Party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. <laughs> Buy the ticket. Take the ride. Smoke it. Smoke it.